Personally, when I became the, the senior pastor of our church and, and we came back to Calvary Chapel, our eldership had determined uh, that uh, we were going to return to our Calvary roots. One of the, the very first people that we made contact with that really began to, to help us to get on track and to uh, not just teach the word, you know, line upon line, precept upon precept, but from an apologetic standpoint to learn how to answer questions to people who were skeptical or people who maybe had believed at one time and had fallen away. And uh, uh, it was just one of these ministries, always be ready. Charlie Campbell, uh, like I said, befriended us. And I think he had shared, I think it's been since about 2008. He's almost come every single year since then. And uh, just countless lives have been touched and been changed uh, because of his ministry. Uh, we're all blessed to partner with him. I was just telling him that we just started a, a Bible study over at uh, the Smoke Tree Mobile Estates. And uh, we were using his uh, material to kick it off. We did the Rapture series and then uh, the End Times uh, uh, events great material and it uh, really sparks tremendous interest then to get into God's word uh, we're now you know reading through the book of Daniel and first Thessalonians and so uh, today I know you'll be really blessed he's got a table uh, that's outside he'll tell you more about it but I just wanted to uh, remind you you know when when someone like Charlie comes uh, and what and the reason why as a church we love having uh, people like Charlie come to our pulpit and, and share is they're trusting God. I mean, he's going, Mike, I'm, I'm, I'll come to Bakersfield. I mean, and if we said we didn't have anything to pay you, he would still come to Bakersfield. We are giving him an honorarium. But what he, his ministry continues is because of the, the materials that he's developed and made available. And through the years, you guys have blessed his ministry tremendously. And I wanted to just let you know that, you know, it, you got to love someone like that, that just doesn't just talk about living by faith, but then walks by faith and does this uh, week in and week out. And uh, his ministry, like I said, has tremendous impact upon ours here uh, in Bakersfield. And it's so far reaching and uh, we're really blessed to be able to have him. Uh, he'll be out there after the service today. Uh, he'd love to meet with you. Uh, just know if you're here today and you're going, man, I, I just don't have the, the money uh, to pay for um, you know the things that I'd like, you can let me know because we're going to purchase uh, materials after the service is over, and we're going to place those in our bookstore, so they will be here you know in the weeks ahead as well. And you can always go on his website, alwaysbeready.com. Um, but this morning, if you would, if you'd join me in just giving a warm Calvary Chapel welcome to Charlie Campbell as he comes. Thanks, Mike. Oh, love coming back to this church. It's so great to see all of you again. And I, I just so appreciate the partnership, the friendship we've had over the years. I really can't do what I do. I can't contend for the faith unless pastors are willing to uh, occasionally share their pulpit with me. So I appreciate your pastor's willingness to have me back uh, now several times uh, since 2008. And it's been fun to get to know all of you and to see some familiar faces every time I come back. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
like to go ahead and pray again as well. Heavenly Father, we just ask now that you would bless this time. We're going to consider the scriptures now, God, and we ask for your help in understanding them and applying them to our heart. We pray that you would teach us and encourage our hearts, Lord, that we might leave here fortified in the faith and excited to uh, share the gospel with people, God. That's our desire, to be used by you in this generation for the furtherance of that glorious good news of Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins and risen again on the third day. So Lord, bless this time we ask now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to draw your attention to verse 16 and 17. This is a well-known uh, verse. If you don't have a Bible, I will put it on the screen for you as well. But notice what the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy. He says, all scripture, not most of it or some of it, all of it is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul says here that all scripture, all of the documents that God determined would make up the Bible are the inspired word of God. That is to say that although the books of the Bible were written by men, they were written by men who were guided by God as they pinned down its words. And of course, as a result, they are absolutely trustworthy, we believe, in all that they teach. Now, of course, critics of Christianity disagree with Paul's assessment of Scripture. Many critics of Christianity think that the Bible is not a book given to us by inspiration of God, but rather an ancient collection of fabrications about God. Well, of course, we disagree with the critics, and for good reason. Those of us who have taken the time to investigate some of the evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible have come to the conclusion that there are a wealth of reasons to take the Bible seriously. You may recall when I was here last, about a year and a half ago or so, I did a whole presentation here on a Sunday morning on the Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. Well, this morning, I'd like to revisit the trustworthiness of the Bible, but this time, I'd like to focus on the archaeological evidence for the Bible. Last time I was here, we talked about the stars and the, the sun and the shape of the earth and stuff going on out there. This morning, we're going to consider what's going on down in the ground as far as what it has to say regarding the Bible. Many people who believe that the Bible is just a compilation of folklore and legend overlook the fact that over the past 150 years, archaeologists have unearthed thousands of artifacts, inscriptions, and so on that have over and over again verified the exact truthfulness of the Bible's detailed records of different events, customs, 
persons and geographical locations. So we're going to look at uh, these kinds of discoveries this morning. My hope and prayer is that it will continue to encourage you in your faith, that you'll leave here with even a greater assurance than before that the Bible really is trustworthy in what it has to say. We'll start by considering some discoveries that have a bearing on the reliability of the Old Testament, starting all the way back with the ancient art of writing. The ancient art of writing. Many critics of the Bible used to claim that the art of writing was completely unknown in Moses' day, around 1500 BC. They confidently assured people that the age of Moses was an age of illiteracy. Some scholars even asserted that writing was not even invented until 500 years after the time of Moses. And because that was supposedly the case, critics of the Bible said Moses surely could not have written the first five books of the Bible. And with that, they thought they blew up the foundation of Judaism and Christianity. Moses couldn't write, kaboom, there goes the Bible. And who are you to question us with the PhDs, you know? Well, Christians and Jews did question their radical conclusions, and years later, great libraries of written tablets were discovered in the ruins at Ur in Iraq that demonstrated writing was around long before Moses and even long before the birth of Abraham. This particular tablet that you're seeing there on the screen was pulled up out of the ruins at Ur. Abraham's hometown and has been dated to about the very time of Abraham, about 2000 BC. But thousands of these ancient texts have now been found. Here's another one dating back to 1750 BC, again, long before the time of Moses. So the critics' allegations that writing didn't even exist at the time of Moses have now been left in a pile of ashes as many of their assaults on the Bible have been, as we'll continue to see here this morning. All right, moving along, let's consider one of the major events Moses wrote about. I'm talking about the Genesis flood. Of course, the Bible tells us that God judged sinful humanity about 2,500 years before Jesus' birth with a cataclysmic flood that devastated the planet. If this event happened, as Moses said, and as both Jesus and Peter affirmed in the New Testament, surely there should be some evidence for it. And there is. Let me just quickly give you an overview of two lines of evidence for the Genesis flood. First, everywhere archaeologists and geologists dig on all seven continents, they find billions of dead creatures buried and fossilized inside sedimentary rock made up of sand, mud, and lime that were deposited rapidly by water. Billions of dead creatures encased inside sedimentary rock that was quickly laid down by water? That's odd. Animals that die natural deaths rapidly decompose and disappear. That's what happens to an animal when it dies. 
Their bodies fall to the ground, and within months, their bones are dragged off by scavengers, or if left alone, they begin to decay under the wear and tear of the elements. But something different happened with the billions of creatures we find in the fossil record today. Their bones are preserved, many of them wholly intact, with very little evidence of decay. Well, this has led many paleontologists, geologists, and archaeologists to conclude that these creatures were killed during a flood. Their bodies were caught in the mud flow, rapidly buried in the sediment while it was still wet and soft and then preserved. The fossils of billions of dead creatures all over the planet encased inside sedimentary rock are a powerful reminder of the flood described in the book of Genesis. But in addition to the widespread fossil evidence, archaeologists have now unearthed a number of ancient extra-biblical writings describing a catastrophic flood. Of course, after the flood was over, Noah's descendants spread out to different parts of the ancient world. And as they did so, they took their memories of the flood with them. And they passed those stories down to their children, who would pass them down to their children, and on and on it went. And so really, it comes as no surprise to find that the Sumerians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, Hindus, Chinese, Mexicans, Algonquins, and Hawaiians all have ancient accounts of a devastating flood. Although there are some differences between the accounts, the parallels, the similarities between the accounts are pretty incredible. And they've led many to conclude that these different accounts are all pointing back to one major common event, the flood recorded for us by Moses in the book of Genesis. Now, obviously, lots more could be said about evidence for the flood. I'll leave that uh, alone for now. If you'd like to do some further research on that topic, you can go to our website at alwaysbeready.com. We've got an entire section of the site dedicated to articles and research on the flood. All right, moving along. Let's talk for a couple of minutes about the ancient city of Jericho. The ancient city of Jericho. Jericho is about 10 miles north of the Dead Sea and five miles west of the Jordan River. Of course, it's remembered as the city the Israelites marched around for seven days before God caused the walls of the city to fall down. You've read about this in Joshua chapter 6. Well, there was an incredible discovery made in the 1950s. Kathleen Kenyon, a British archaeologist, found the fallen walls of an ancient fortified city at uh, Jericho. But there was a problem. Kenyon claimed that the ancient city of Jericho was destroyed around 1550. BC. Why was that a problem? Well, because a biblical chronology places the destruction of the city closer to 1400 BC, a century and a half later. Well, of course, the critics of Christianity loved Kathleen Kenyon's conclusions. And so for 30 or 40 years, they would cite Kathleen Kenyon's conclusions as proof that Joshua's conquest of Jericho was pure legend. But Kathleen Kenyon's conclusions have now fallen on hard times. 
in a story featured in Time Magazine in 1990 called, and I love the title of the story, Score One for the Bible. <laughs> we read of how a newer examination by archaeologists of the ancient Canaanite pottery pulled up out of Jericho has demonstrated that Jericho was indeed conquered around 1400 BC, the very time the Old Testament dates the crossing of the Hebrew people into Canaan. Discoveries at Jericho that correspond perfectly with the biblical account includes the following, and the Time Magazine article mentions these, uh, the collapsed walls of the city that you've read about in Joshua 6, verse 24. There's evidence that the walls collapsed at the time the city was destroyed, not later, for example, under age and decay. There's evidence that the city was massively destroyed by fire, as indicated in Joshua 6, verse 24. And there's evidence that the destruction occurred at harvest time in the spring. Archaeologists came to this conclusion after finding large quantities of grain stored in the city. So all of these discoveries correspond perfectly with the biblical account. As the Time Magazine article said, score one for the Bible indeed. And we're still just getting warmed up. Let's see what the score is in about 30 minutes. We'll see. I think the Bible's going to win, but... All right, moving along. Another discovery has to do with David, the second king of Israel. And by way of reminder, these are not actual portraits. Now, up until 1993, not a shred of evidence could be found anywhere outside of the Bible that David ever existed. And so it had become quite fashionable within academic circles to dismiss the David stories as mere invention. The critics' verdict was that David was nothing more than a figure of religious and political mythology, one author said. Well, their skepticism regarding David collapsed overnight in 1993 when this nearly 3,000-year-old inscription was pulled up out of the ruins in the town of Dan in northern Israel, mentioning David, the king of Israel. This was an amazing discovery and helped to verify for the first time outside of the Bible that David was indeed a real historical figure. Time Magazine did a whole article on this discovery and they summarized by saying the skeptics claim that King David never existed is now hard to defend. Indeed it is. How about the ancient city of Nineveh? If you've read the book of Jonah, you've read a bit about this ancient city. The Old Testament tells us that God directed a Jewish prophet by the name of Jonah to go to a city called Nineveh. His message was of coming judgment, for we are told in the Bible that the people were exceedingly wicked. Well, if you've read the book of Jonah, you know what happened. The people repented and God spared the city. Was Nineveh just a legendary city, perhaps? Just part of a big fish story? Some critics of the Bible used to think that was a possibility because the city of Nineveh had been completely lost. It had been buried under centuries of sandstorms, and so no one knew if this was even a real place until the British archaeologist Austin Layard finally located 
the city and began excavating it. The city, once the capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire, has now been extensively excavated. Remains of its walls, temples, palaces, library, moats, and defenses still survive on the eastern bank of the Tigris River opposite the modern city of Mosul in northern Iraq. One of the fascinating discoveries, and there were several, that they pulled up out of the ruins of Nineveh was this six-sided clay prison, prism known as the Sennacherib prism. It speaks of the Assyrian king Sennacherib's invasion of Judah written about in 2 Kings and the book of Isaiah during the reign of Hezekiah, a king in Judah. And it corroborates many details in the biblical account. It's on display today at the British Museum in London. If you're ever in London for any kind of extended uh, vacation or for a few days anyways, I would really encourage you to spend an entire day at the British Museum. It's incredible what's on display there. Lots of discoveries there that verify different details in the Bible, including this uh, prism. But speaking of King Hezekiah, let's talk for a minute or two about him and his life-saving tunnel. Hezekiah was one of Judah's better kings. He's written about in the book of Isaiah and 2 Chronicles, among other places. But the Bible tells us that during his reign, Hezekiah ordered a tunnel to be built to secretly channel water from outside Jerusalem's main wall into Jerusalem, where people could then safely collect water during an enemy siege on the city. Well, in December of 2015, archaeologists announced that they had unearthed this ancient clay impression bearing the name of King Hezekiah. It was unearthed in the ruins just south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The ancient Hebrew script there on the impression says, Belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. This verified for us that Hezekiah was a real person. Even the son of King Ahaz exactly as the Bible indicates. What a great discovery that was. But long before this exciting discovery, the tunnel Hezekiah built in 2 Kings chapter 20 was discovered. Considered an engineering marvel, Hezekiah's tunnel winds through nearly 2,000 feet of solid limestone, about a third of a mile long in the city of Jerusalem. It was dug by two teams of tunnelers who worked from opposite ends and then who met in the middle where they made uh, an inscription in the tunnel to commemorate the tunnel's completion. But if you go to Israel today on any kind of guided tour, you can walk through this tunnel if you don't mind the low ceiling and getting a little wet. Water still flows through the tunnel, uh, sometimes up to your waist. So it's not for the claustrophobic. Uh, nor the fainted heart. It's actually pitch black inside also, you know, except for your flashlight. But several tourists have, be, you know, they thought, oh, that sounds fun. And, and they begin the journey through the tunnel. They think this is going to be great. And like 30 feet in, they're like, I don't like this. 
<laughs> and, and they want to turn around, but now you've got 20, 30 people behind you, and you, you, now you've got to go through the whole thing. But what a thrill to walk through the very tunnel built about 700 years before Jesus was born, the one you've read about in 2 Kings chapter 20. It's still there to this day, channeling water into the city of Jerusalem just like it was originally built to do so. What a great discovery. All right, moving along. Let's talk for a couple of minutes about this man, King Nebuchadnezzar and the ancient city of Babylon. We're told in the Bible that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came against the southern kingdom of Judah. The year was 605 BC. We're told in the Bible that the Babylonians besieged the city of Jerusalem. And then when the city fell, they took many of the Jews, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, captive back to Babylon's captive, or capital city in modern-day Iraq. Was Babylon a legendary city, maybe? Was Nebuchadnezzar a mythological person? Is the scripture's account of the Babylonian siege on Jerusalem a fabrication? Well, of course, the answer is no to all three of those questions. Today, you can go to Iraq, 25 miles south of Baghdad, and see the excavated ruins of ancient Babylon. Archaeologists have unearthed the ruins of King Nebuchadnezzar's palaces, temples to his god Marduk, city walls, houses, pots, pans, metal objects, all kinds of things belonging to the very time Nebuchadnezzar ruled. These are buildings and structures that Daniel and Shadrach and the guys would have all been, of course, very familiar with. In fact, several of the nearly 15 million baked bricks used in the construction of Nebuchadnezzar's royal administrative buildings bear the inscription, Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon. Can you imagine the pride he must have had to insist that his name be stamped on every brick? And, I, and actually, I don't even know if he insisted his name be stamped. Maybe the people were just so fearful, they thought, we better put his name on everything. Guy's totally, you know, cocky and conceited. Let's just, you know, maybe that'll make him happy. I don't know. But, you know, we even have surviving likenesses of Nebuchadnezzar. We know what he looked like based on four different archaeological discoveries. This one just being one quick example. But in addition to these discoveries at Babylon, archaeologists also unearthed thousands of ancient Babylonian clay tablets that contain a treasure trove of information about Babylon's history. They are known, these tablets are known to archaeologists today as the Babylonian Chronicle Tablets. And amazingly, these ancient Babylonian records tell us of their siege against Jerusalem and that's not all they also confirm the fact that after the city was overthrown they then deported the Jewish people captive all the way back to their capital city of Babylon hundreds of miles to the east of course this just goes to show that the authors of the Bible were telling us the truth about these matters while we're on the topic of Babylon, let's talk for a minute about this man, Belshazzar. Belshazzar. Turn with me in your Bibles back to the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 5. Daniel, chapter 5. You've read about Belshazzar here in this chapter. And I'll put it on the screen for you, but I think it'd be good for you to be familiar with this in your own Bibles. This was one of the most attacked 
passages in the entire Bible by the critics. Daniel chapter 5, and I'll tell you why here. In Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, Daniel introduces us to the king of Babylon at the time by the name of Belshazzar. And he tells us in verse 1 that Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of of the thousand. So while this massive party is going on and everyone's drinking and probably the band was playing, something mysterious gets Belshazzar's attention. In verse 5, Belshazzar sees a hand uh, out of nowhere, detached from a body. This image of a hand writing a mysterious message on the wall of one of his palaces that no one could interpret. So Daniel was called in to help interpret the message in verse 13. And the message was given that Belshazzar's kingdom was done in verse 26. Well, the Bible goes on to tell us that that very night... Belshazzar was killed in verse 30 and the city of Babylon passed into the hands of the Medes and the Persians. They had already surrounded the city. Apparently Belshazzar was confident enough that their walls that were 75 feet thick were not going to be uh, able to be penetrated. So he thought, you know what, let's just throw a big party. We're not worried about the Medes and the Persians and their armies (laughs) outside the city. Let's go ahead and have a party. Well, we've learned from a Greek historian by the name of Herodotus that the Medes and the Persians figured out a way to get into this greatly fortified city by diverting the river, the Euphrates River that flowed underneath the walls into the city. They dammed up the river, diverted the water, and the soldiers, the armies went underneath the wall this very night and they put Belshazzar to death. Well, this passage of scripture, Daniel chapter five, was long the target of critics' canons. Why is that? Well, they consider Daniel's references to Belshazzar to be pure invention and a historical blunder because the name Belshazzar could not be found anywhere outside of the Bible. And the ancient historians Barosus and Alexander Polyhister said that the last king of the Babylonian Empire, before it fell into the hands of the Medes and the Persians, was a man named, not Belshazzar like the Bible says, but a man named Nabonidus. Nabonidus. And so the critics appeared very wise for several decades, pontificating about how the author of the book of Daniel, not even living in Babylon probably at the time, probably writing this book long after, just decided to make up the name of the last king and just came up with this crazy name, Belshazzar. Well, the critics appear to have a case. I mean, we've got two ancient historians to side with, and then they've got Daniel with no corroborating evidence. And so they used to blast Daniel chapter 5 as being unreliable. Well, that all changed when the Babylonian Chronicle tablets were unearthed. 
This particular Babylonian tablet there on the screen tells us that when King Nabonidus left Babylon for a multi-year stay in the Arabian oasis town of Tima, about 450 miles away from Babylon, he entrusted the rule of Babylon into the hands of Belshazzar, his eldest son. Belshazzar, what do you know? The Bible was right. The critics had to take their damaged cannons and go home <laughs> when it came to this one. All right, so that's a concise sampling of some discoveries that have a bearing on the reliability of the Old Testament. That's kind of a flyover. If you'd like to dive deeper into those kinds of discoveries related to the Old Testament, uh, I, would, I would point you to my book, Archaeological Evidence for the Bible. I treat all of those and several more in a more in-depth fashion. But let's switch gears now and talk about some discoveries that have a bearing on the reliability of the New Testament. Let's kick things off here with... This man, Herod the Great. Herod the Great, you've read about him. The Bible tells us that Herod was the king in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth and that he tried to have Jesus killed shortly after he was born. Was he a legendary figure maybe? No. In addition to the fact that the first century historian Flavius Josephus wrote about him, a wealth of archaeological evidence has now confirmed his existence. Discoveries include this piece of a wine jug dating back to 19 BC that was uncovered here at Masada, Herod's cliffside palace fortress overlooking the Dead Sea there in the background. The inscription on the wine jug includes a reference to Herod and his full title, Herod, King of Judea. Other discoveries include coins with Herod's name on them, Herod's desert palace south of Jericho and his hilltop palace south of Jerusalem known as the Herodium. All of these discoveries support the New Testament accounts and leave no doubt that Herod really was a historical figure and that he ruled in the very position described in the New Testament Gospels, King of Judea. How about John the Baptist? John the Baptist was a contemporary of Herod the Great. The New Testament tells us that Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, cast John the Baptist into prison for condemning Antipas's adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. Well, sometime later, an executioner was called in and John was beheaded. You're familiar with that. Well, this too has been confirmed outside of the Bible. Flavius Josephus, a first century historian working for the Roman Empire, he talks to us in his writings about Herod Antipas. He talks about his adulterous wife and the murder of John the Baptist. His book is called Antiquities of the Jews. It's in the public domain. You can find it for free on the internet and look these things up yourself if you'd like. But let me just pull a short excerpt uh, from his writings for you. Notice who he mentions here in the top line. He says, John that was called the Baptist was a good man 
and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism. Herod, who feared the great influence John had over the people, sent John a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the castle I before mentioned, and was there put to death. So notice that Josephus verifies for us that John the Baptist was a real historical person. Um, the, the John the Baptist was a real person, but that he was also put to death by Herod Antipas, just as the Bible says. Well, archaeologists have now also discovered the very palace where John the Baptist was imprisoned and put to death. Josephus said that it was called Machaerus. Well, archaeologists have unearthed it on top of this hill overlooking the Dead Sea there uh, in the background. Excavations at the ruins are ongoing, but in the meantime, archaeologists have created this cutaway a computerized rendering of what the palace would have looked like in the first century. But one of the more fascinating things they have unearthed is the underground dungeon uh, where we believe John the Baptist spent his final days. They've even discovered several places in the walls where the prisoners were chained to the wall. So, uh, of course, a sobering but fascinating discovery there. All right, moving along, let's talk for a minute or two about this man, Caiaphas. The New Testament tells us that the name of the Jewish high priest at the time of Jesus was Caiaphas. He was the one who presided over that late night trial wherein Jesus confessed himself to be the Messiah, which of course resulted in his condemnation. But we're also told in the New Testament that it was in the courtyard of Caiaphas's house that Peter denied knowing who Jesus was. Was Caiaphas a New Testament invention? No. In 1990, a team of construction workers building a water park, of all things, approximately two miles south of Jerusalem, accidentally unearthed a first century Jewish burial cave. Because of its enormous weight, a bulldozer unintentionally fell through the top of the cave. Well, the archaeologists were called in, and in the cave, they discovered several bone ossuaries, stone boxes that the Jews used in their burials in the first two centuries AD. And on one of the uncharacteristically ornate ossuaries was an inscription in Aramaic mentioning Caiaphas's full name, first and last, Joseph Caiaphas, the very name of the high priest that Flavius Josephus records for us in his writings. That ossuary is on display today in the museum in Jerusalem as testimony to the fact Caiaphas was a real person. Another amazing discovery has to do with Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. The New Testament authors tell us that Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea at the time of Jesus who oversaw Jesus' trial and then, of course, had the final word regarding Jesus uh, being crucified. Was he a legendary figure, maybe? No. In June of 1961, a team of Italian archaeologists was digging here in Caesarea 
on the shore of the beautiful Mediterranean Sea there in Israel. While clearing away the sands and overgrowth from the jumbled ruins of this ancient Roman theater, these archaeologists made an incredible discovery. They found this limestone block about three feet tall with an inscription in Latin dating to the early part of the first century that mentioned Pontius Pilate, prefect or governor of Judea. So that inscription verified for us that Pontius Pilate was a real historical person, that he reigned in the very position ascribed to him by the gospels, and that as prefect, he would have indeed had the authority to pardon or condemn Jesus, just as the gospel accounts report. So there's good evidence for Herod, Caiaphas, John the Baptist, Pontius Pilate, What about this man, Jesus? Well, there's plenty of literary evidence, written evidence for Jesus' life. More than 30 extra-biblical sources mention him within 150 years of his life, including Roman historians like Suetonius, Cornelius Tacitus. Uh, I already mentioned Flavius Josephus. He talks about Jesus some. Um, a collection of Jewish writings known as the Jewish Talmud mention him. So the, the written literary evidence for Jesus' life is very strong. But... Have archaeologists found any stones or coins or inscriptions mentioning Jesus by name? Well, the answer is yes. On November 5th, 2005, Israeli archaeologists announced an amazing discovery. In the town of Megiddo in northern Israel, a prison inmate at a maximum security prison, unearthed the remains of one of the oldest Christian churches ever discovered. You never know what a prisoner might find if you just give them some free time and a shovel. They had asked the guards there at the prison if they could put in a basketball court, and it had gotten approved. And so the prisoners are out there, one guy in particular, um, laying the foundation, they're digging up the ground to lay the foundation for a basketball court, of all things. While digging in the prison yard, Ramil Rosillo, that was his name, discovered a 16 by 32 foot Greek style mosaic floor that bore an inscription mentioning that the building, the church, had been built in the memory of the God, Jesus Christ. That is the first uncontested archaeological discovery mentioning Jesus by name, and it was just unearthed in 2005, not long ago. And not only does this recent discovery help reinforce the fact that Jesus was a real person, it also underscores what we have long known. The earliest Christians believed Jesus was God. I mention this because there are misinformed university professors today and people like the Jehovah's Witnesses who say that the earliest Christians never believed Jesus was God. They say that was something the church invented centuries later. Well, we've got solid archaeological evidence now that the early Christians did believe Jesus was God. They say there on the floor of this meeting hall, this fellowship hall, that this building has been erected in the memory of the God, Jesus Christ, not the good teacher or the angel or the prophet Jesus, but the God, Jesus Christ. So what an incredible discovery. One of the things that astounded me with this discovery is this was just a few months before Sony released the Da Vinci Code movie nationwide. And of course, the Da Vinci Code movie 
made the same charge that the Jehovah's Witnesses make today. In that movie, in that book, the earliest Christians never believed Jesus was God. God says, oh yeah, you think that? Okay, well, let's have this guy dig up this thing and put it in a basketball court. That discovery was made just months before the movie came out. I just thought, wow, Lord, you're amazing. <laughs> the timing of this discovery, it was, it was just astounding. What about first century crucifixion? First century crucifixion, according to the Bible, Jesus' hands or wrists were nailed to the cross. You're familiar with that, of course. But at one time, critics of the Bible said that crucifixions with nails never even took place in Israel in the first century. They said there's no evidence they happened and nails wouldn't hold up the weight of the bodies. Well, the critics were shown to be wrong again when a crew of builders from the Israel Ministry of Housing working in Jerusalem accidentally, it's always on accident, <laughs> it seems, discovered an ancient Jewish cemetery that contained the remains of several men who were killed during the Jewish revolt against Rome in A.D. 70. Well, one of the bone ossuaries that they pulled up out of the ground contained the skeleton of a young man and an inscription of the man's name. But what stunned archaeologists most, though, was how this man had been put to death. He had been put to death by crucifixion with nails. How was that determined? Well, he still had an iron spike driven through his heel bone. On the screen, you're seeing the actual heel bone with the original spike. It's on display today in the Israeli Museum. You'll notice the head of the spike on the left and the bent tip on the right. Now, the Romans typically removed the nails from their victims and for good reason. Iron was expensive, but apparently this nail was too difficult to remove. The tip of the nail had been bent back toward the head, likely the result of hitting a knot in the wood, and so the Roman soldiers just left it there. And now, 2,000 years later, we have solid archaeological evidence that the Romans did crucify people in Israel in the first century with nails, just like the Bible says they did. All right, let's head down the home stretch here and talk lastly for a few minutes about persons and places mentioned by Luke. Persons and places mentioned by Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, in the book of Acts, Luke tells us of the spread of Christianity from Jerusalem to Rome. In his detailed accounts, he mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, nine different islands, seaports, the names of titles and priests and political leaders, the, the names of different deities that people worshipped, and on and on. Luke was very detailed. If you've read the Gospel of Luke or the book of Acts, you know what I'm referring to. Was Luke just making these kinds of things up? Some critics of the Bible once thought so. Hans Konzelman, the author of History of Primitive Christianity, a book I don't recommend, declared the book of Acts to be a made-up story beginning to end. Konzelman and other critics believe that Luke had concocted his narrative from the rambling of his imagination because he ascribed odd titles to authorities and mentioned governors that no one knew. 
one of the supposed heirs can be found in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In Luke chapter 3, verse 1, Luke tells us that John the Baptist's preaching ministry was taking place when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. I like Luke's style. He doesn't just introduce John the Baptist to us out of the blue and say, hey, there's this guy, John, you know, he showed up on the scene. No, he tells you what's going on in the Roman Empire at the time John the Baptist rose in popularity. I like that. He's grounding what he's saying in actual verifiable history. And so he says, when John the Baptist came on the scene, let me tell you what was going on. He says, he says uh, Pontius Pilate was the ruler over here. And this other guy, he was the governor here. And this guy, he mentions, I don't know, a handful of names there in that one verse. And he tells you where they were ruling. But at the end of this verse, he mentions this guy by the name of Lysanias. And he says, he was a tetrarch in the city of Abilene, which is also called Abila in some places. Well, for years, critics pointed to this verse. Luke chapter 3, verse 1, as evidence that Luke doesn't know what he's talking about since everybody knows that Lysanias was not a tetrarch but rather the ruler of a different city, not an Abilene or Abila, but Chalcis, hundreds of miles away, half a century earlier. And so the critics said if Luke can't get that basic fact right, nothing he's written can be trusted. And a host of Bible critics accuse Luke of things like making a gross chronological blunder here regarding this, this uh, particular verse. Well, informed historians are not talking about Luke like that anymore. John McRae, a well-known veteran archaeologist, says this. He says, an inscription was later found from the time of Tiberius from A.D. 14 to 37, which names Lysanias as Tetrarch in Abila near Damascus, just as Luke had written. It turned out there had been two government officials named Lysanias. Once more, Luke was shown to be exactly right. So it turns out it was the critics who made the gross chronological blunder, not Luke. And this is just one quick example of where Luke has been proven to be right by the advance of archaeology. More than 80 details in the book of Acts alone have now been confirmed by historical and archaeological research. Brothers and sisters, I tell you about these discoveries today because I want to assure you afresh that you can trust the Bible. You can read it with the highest degree of confidence. Jesus himself summarized the entirety of Scripture with one word. He was talking to God the Father in prayer in John chapter 17, verse 17, and he said, Thy word is truth. The Bible tells us the truth about our maker and for that we can be incredibly thankful. What a blessing it is to know God and to have the Bible to guide us through this life. Do you know your maker in a personal way? You can. That's why Jesus, God in the flesh, died on that cruel Roman cross. Because of his great love, the Bible says he died there in your place for your sins, to pay the penalty, the judgment, the condemnation that you deserved for your sins. 
so that you could be forgiven, rescued from spending eternity in hell and be brought back into a right relationship with your creator. Of course, he rose from the grave three days later and today he offers all of mankind the forgiveness of sins, peace with God and the free gift of everlasting life. That is such great news. We deserve condemnation and judgment. And God says, no, 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 I've got something way better. Way better for you. How about the forgiveness of all of your sins and the free gift of everlasting life? What a gracious, merciful offer God has made humanity. How do you receive that gift? Jesus simply said, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's it. Jesus has done all the hard work. God simply wants you now to place your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross. And you can do that today. God's a prayer away. You can call out to him today and say, God, forgive me for my sins. I trust in Jesus Christ to save me. Come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. If you'll do that, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Maybe that's where you're at today. Stop running from God. Get right with him today. Call upon his name before you even walk out those doors. For the rest of you who have already done that, as I trust most of you have, may you continue in the faith, picking up the Bible and meditating in it often, fully confident that it is absolutely trustworthy in all that it has to say. Amen? Amen. Well, if you've enjoyed uh, learning about some of these discoveries and maybe want to share this presentation with a friend, we do have uh, the entire presentation uh, pre-recorded on DVD. If you stop by our resource table, you're going to see that we have 33 different DVDs out there. I know some of you have picked some of those up in the past. Um, we do have the entire library on a blue flash drive if you're interested in getting the whole library and maybe going through several topics in the months ahead. And then one last resource I want to just quickly highlight is this brand new updated and expanded edition of a book I wrote back in 2005. I know several of you bought this book probably um, some years back. It's called One Minute Answers to Skeptics. I rewrote the whole thing from the ground up, mainly because I think atheists and skeptics today are raising different kinds of objections and criticisms of God and the Bible that I did not address in my previous edition of the book. So this is the latest attempt um, by me to tackle what I think are skeptics and atheists top 50 objections to God and the Bible. Uh, objections like there's no evidence God exists. What are you talking about? I mean, there's, there's no compelling evidence God exists and men wrote the Bible and men are fallible so the Bible certainly can't be infallible. And the Bible promotes slavery and genocide. It demeans women and promotes hatred of homosexuals. And you want me to believe it? Those are the kinds of objections that people are bringing up today regarding the Bible. And a lot of time, and, and none of them are true, but a lot of Christians are caught flat-footed and unprepared to at least offer a quick response to some of those attacks on the Bible. So if you could use some help 
with some short, concise answers. We've got some copies of that outside as well. So I'm gonna go ahead and uh, pray, and then I think we're gonna close in a song. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this time today in your word. What a blessing it is to um, have your word, to guide us through this life on our journey to heaven. And Lord, we're thankful for these incredible archeological discoveries that have uh, helped to remind us that we haven't followed after cleverly devised fables, but that the Bible truly is the trust trustworthy word of God. And Lord, we do pray for our friends and family members, neighbors, coworkers who um, sadly are um, going through this life not enjoying a relationship with you. God, we ask that you would draw them to yourself. We ask for their salvation, that you would convict them of their sin and help them to see their needy spiritual condition, Lord, that they might place their faith in Jesus. Work in their hearts to that end. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you guys for letting me share with you today. Hey, man, just so that you know, again, Charlie's gonna be outside after the service and uh, he'd love to meet you and greet you there. And there's tremendous resources there. He just told you about the one of the, probably the one I'd highly recommend that you get. And like I said, if you can't afford it today, uh, make note of it. Let me know. And uh, on the way out, um, a couple of our ushers will be handing these to you if you'd like them. These are those uh, Easter changes everything. And just to be prayerful about how God might use you. You know, what we've discovered today, you know, the, the reason people